Hello and welcome to Cruising Through History with Scott Cruz. I'm Xander with Kenosha Public Library. Scott, what are we cruising through today? Well today, Xander, I'm going to talk about how the use of mustard gas led to breakthroughs in chemotherapy for certain types of cancers. So mustard mustard gas is the mustard gas is like a chemical weapon, right? Yes. And that became a medical treatment. Yes. All right. Um first firstly, let's what the what did med, how did that seems weird that something used in the military became cancer treatment. So what is like what describe mustard gas for me. Okay, mustard gas was originally used in World War 1 as just what it says, a gas. Mm -hmm. So you would have these canisters and you would release it and then it would blow. This is in the later stages of World War One, and uh, I think there was such a stalemate at the front they were trying anything. So you open the canister, the, the gas blows and actually you can see it start to go across the field. It's very slow moving. Yeah. So people would put their gas masks on and sometimes the gas masks weren't enough, they would penetrate, mm -hmm. or they didn't have time, and so it would cause a lot of eye irritation, scarring of the lungs, which was the biggest killer, actually. The problem with it was if the wind blew the other way, it blew it on your own troops. And another problem with mustard gas in World War I was that it would stay in the ground. Oh. So it would rise uh, at certain times when you weren't expecting it, so you couldn't put your mask on. Now that was the mustard gas that was used in World War One, and even after World War One, there was some inkling that, well, this might be able to be used because some people had noticed that it would kill certain cells. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until this incident that happened during World War II with a different type of mustard, I guess we'll call it gas for the sake of argument, that um, one person, a doctor who worked for the U.S. Army, he noticed and he started doing more, more uh, not experimentation, but he started to look at blood work from victims and things of that nature and started to really figure this out. So it had been kind of known before. I mean, I think they tried it 1919, 1931, but because it had such a stigma, it didn't go very far. Well, yeah, it's chemical warfare. Yeah, exactly. what we're and I, I was, I mean, I was looking at some stuff. And I was like, whoa, people did not like chemical warfare. <laughs> no, they didn't. And so, it all started um, December second, nineteen forty-three. Uh, there was uh, many, a, a bunch of ships were moored in Bari Harbor in Italy. Now, Bari is on the ankle of Italy, I guess. It's north of the heel on the Adriatic Sea, so it's on the east side of Italy. And actually a lot of the journalists there called it a little Pearl Harbor because the Germans had come in and uh, they bombed all the ships. Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't until later they noticed a lot of the victims, they were rescued, but yet somehow they were getting sick. They had eye irritation and they had all these other symptoms that if you knew it, you would think they were suffering from a gas attack. And, yeah. And in this case, it was actually called uh, liquid, liquid mustard gas or sulfur mustard. And when they went into the water, the mixture of the oil and the, and the oh. gas in its liquid form it penetrated like, their skin. It like made its own must, like it was, 
it was almost, I don't want to say naturally occurring, but just because the mix of what was going on made its own mustard, like mustard gas. Right, well, the, the, they, were, they, were, they were mustard gas, and there was 2,000 mustard gas bombs that were on the USS John Harvey. Now, it wasn't discovered till later that that's what it was. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, someone may be saying, well, Scott, why on earth did the John Harvey have 200 mustard bombs on it? Well, the reason is because the rumors were flying around that Hitler was going to resort to chemical warfare when the Allies invaded Italy. They had already come through Sicily. So if our listeners can probably know that. So if you're coming through North Africa to Sicily and then Italy, you're going up into yeah. Europe. Yep, yep. So there was a lot of, and, it, and actually the, the taking of Italy took a little bit longer than they thought. It was more bloody than they thought it would be. Uh, the Germans are very persistent fighters there. So... Yeah, so that's why it was there. Now, the problem also was, is when people went to rescue people out of the water. Mm -hmm. They'd contaminate themselves, They did, right? because yeah. when you got them on a ship and because no one knew what they were dealing with, that mixture got on the ship, other people were contaminated by it. And that's part of why people hate chemical warfare. You don't know, right? Right. It's just, it's, so the army had sent a man out named Lieutenant. Uh, Dr. Stuart Alexander, and he was lieutenant colonel. Okay. He served in the Chemical Warfare Service, uh, and then in the United States at the beginning of World War II, and then he was sent to North Africa. So he was sent out to investigate all this stuff. Okay. And he was the one who kept saying, this looks like a mustard gas that we're dealing with. Now, because it was top secret, no one had uh, informed the medical authorities in Bari that this is what they were dealing with. So some of the victims, or actually most of them, didn't get the treatment they should have gotten because people, uh, officers and people higher up were more concerned with protecting the secret. Of course, it doesn't mention what would have happened if the ship sank, thank God, because with the ship blew up, all would have just released. It would have rained that all wind. that on, and there were civilians who were killed in this too. Yeah, and that would have just been uncontrollable. It would, have, it would have rained on the city, of Bart. So, yeah, this is <laughs> a new definition of acid rain. Right, right. So that that happened, and so Doctor Alexander he wrote up his report. He sent it in. And he gave his recommendation that this is what, it, what we were dealing with. And it was Winston Churchill who told, who actually cabled uh, his superiors and said, tell him to amend this medical report because it's not, it's not mustard gas. It's, uh, he called it uh, uh, burns due to enemy action. So that's just... <laughs> Which is almost the same thing. So I guess you can say they weren't admitting it. Yeah, but it sounds but it sounds like they're trying to hide something because like that could be whatever. But the news reports are like, well, we can't say it's mustard gas. We don't want to look bad. Right, right. And even even before the Bari attack, the first patient that they had experimented not experimented because the patient did consent. So I guess it was experimental drug at the time was right before this in 1942. Now the, now the patient had passed away, mm -hmm. but they were already in an advanced form. And I think it was always, with any chemotherapies in those early days, it was always, if you gave too much to a patient, you could kill them because you were trying mm -hmm. to balance that out. 
So yeah, let's let's talk about because so we we got an understanding of more mustard gas, but becoming chemotherapy. <laughs> like there's they don't just like you know get a syringe and inject direct mustard gas into your bloodstream. Like what? Right. There there were some. I think it was forms of it. So they took this sulfur mustard, which was mm -hmm. different than the World War One mustard. Okay. And um, and even Dr. Alexander had noticed that it was destroying uh, white blood cells. So then he thought, and it also would suppress the division of cells in the bone marrow and the immune system. So that's how this came about. So really, he was like, it's doing this. I wonder if that would work yes. against cancer. Yes. Because yeah, cancer is like the mul multiplication of cells like uncontrollably, like in a, mm -hmm. in a spot that they shouldn't yes. be doing that, right? Yes. So if they have this in mustard gas starting to mess with cells reproduction, could potentially reverse something like that. And that's how, it, is that how that came up? Yes, and so I don't wanna, I mean, I can tell our listeners I'm not a doctor. <laughs> so a lot of this is, a lot of this knowledge has come to me from reading, but um, yes, that was the point that he noticed it would suppress cells. And so if it could do that, maybe it could, in, in certain amounts, yeah, you're right. They weren't taking mustard and injecting it into people. <laughs> they were taking certain forms of it and, and trying to figure out. Now, the reason it took off with Dr. Stewart, uh, with Dr. Alexander, was because his superior was a man named uh, Cornelius Rhodes, who was a colonel at the time, who had also served in the Chemical Warfare Service, who was also a hematologist. Mm -hmm. So he got, he looked at this, all this reporting that Dr. Alexander had done. And, and hematology is like blood, looking at blood. Yes, right? yes, yeah. study of blood, blood diseases. Okay. And so, and he was thinking, yeah, there's something here. Now, the reason that's significant is because in 1948, Cornelius Rhodes became the head of Sloan, the Sloan Kettering Cancer Institute in New York City. Okay. And that was opened. And so that's when they started doing the experimental, more of the, more of the experimental stuff on patients. Yeah, on patients. So, but did, did, did the patients know that this was must like there's essentially it wasn't mustard gas don't, but it's derived from mustard right, I gas. I don't think they were told that. I think they were told that there was this new experimental drug that they could try. Now, one of the most famous uh one of the most famous people who tried this was Babe Ruth. Really? Babe Ruth. The baseball player. Like the baseball, player. yeah. Yes. Okay. Because as, as people know in in the late 40s, he was suffering from a rare form of cancer of the throat, mm -hmm. uh, in the larynx and whatnot. And so he volunteered. They told him, we have this thing, and it might, it's not a cure, but it could extend your life longer than, you, than we think right now. Okay. And so they, they gave it to him. He, he said, okay, give it to me, and they did. And it worked for a while, but they started to notice this with other patients, too. They would always have good results right away, mm -hmm. but then it would start to wear off, and then they would have relapses. Yeah. yeah, there would there'd be some remission, but not not fully. And so I guess that's what they had to keep working on. Now, yes, it it, it does bring up some ethical questions. Yeah, it's like they did they not tell them that you know this is this compound. They're just like new drug here, try it. Right. Uh, that doesn't seem. Extre very informed for informed and consent. even within even within the medical community there was 
at that time, now we're talking the late 1940s, that we're so far from that right now. Mm -hmm. But even in the medical community at the time, it was, there was division. There was talk of, well, the people that were coming up with the new drugs and they were trying it out on patients were saying, listen, if we can, if we tell someone there's no hope, that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to try to help them. Whereas other doctors had said, no, if there's no hope, we don't, we're not going to do a bunch of things if it's just going to prolong the agony, if you will. Yeah, this is before, um, this is before like, F like FDA approval, or is this like around that time for like experimentation? I think it was, I think there was, it was there at the time. Okay. Now I got a lot of this information from a very excellent book uh, called The Great Secret by Jeanette Conant. And it's ironic because uh, I, I was, uh, I've read many books on World War II. I mean, I don't even know, more than 50, probably more. And uh, I've never encountered this incident ever in anything I read. And I was reading a book called The Day of Battle by Rick Atkinson, which is actually a really good book on the uh, Allied invasion of Sicily and Italy. And he had like a paragraph on it, and it just caught my attention like, eh? I, I, never, I never knew any of this happened. And, and, and uh, well, of course, because it was kept a secret, sort of. Uh, the British kept the secret. The chief of staff of the U.S. Army finally in 1944 admitted that that, w that was on the ship. And they said why it was on there and that they never intended to use it, only in defense. So if Hitler would have used it, then they would have used it. You know, uh, we're getting the beginnings of mutually assured destruction. <laughs> kind of, in a, on a smaller scale, but yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so when Cornelius Rhodes, when he became the head of Sloan Kettering, that's what sort of, of, of got this all moving. And, uh, but the British, they, 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 kept their, they kept the lid on it for a long time. In fact, the first, because people, when, they, when you had World War II veterans who were applying for their pensions or for, that weren't getting them because it was claimed, well, you weren't injured by gas or something. There was some mm -hmm. snafu or something which is also from World War II, that phrase, or that word. <laughs> and uh, we won't go into what it means. Um, it was 1985, I think, was the first time they recognized uh, a veteran who had been injured this way. I mean, that's, that's a long way. <laughs> and that's a lot of, I'm just thinking, that's a lot of experimentation between its first use and, and the type of mustard gas from World War I to 1985, where they're just like, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was from mustard gas. Um, right. How... In, in fact, when they, this was still going on, I mean, and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Alexander would probably have been lost to history because, funnily, funny enough, he, when he was out of the Army, he was offered a job at Sloan Kettering from Cornelius Rhodes, but he had promised his father he would go back to New Jersey and practice medicine in the family practice, mm -hmm. which he did for the rest of his life. And the story kind of went away, which is odd to me that this story has gone away. But anyway, <laughs> so this story kind of went away until, I believe, 1971. A man named Glenn Infield had taken his mother to a doctor because she was suffering from leukemia at the time. Yep. And he said, hey, the drug we're going to give you is derived from mustard gas. They straight up said it? Yeah. And so... 
this Glenn Infield, he was like, he was, he was, he was a U.S. Air Force. He was out by then. But he said, really? So he started doing his own digging. Now, the problem with his book is his book came out in 1971. It caused kind of a stir. The problem is it's sort of like half fiction, half nonfiction, because he had to fill in a lot of gaps. Because, of course, there's not, there weren't a lot of documentation out there. Mm-hmm. Not he, public documentation. Right, right. And, and Stuart Alexander, he did, he did contact him, and Alexander didn't really want to discuss it with him. He was very harsh on Eisenhower, and Alexander was really liked Eisenhower and didn't want to badmouth him in any way. Mm-hmm. And so as we found out later, it was Eisenhower who, now we didn't know it at the time when he wrote this book, but it was Eisenhower who suggested going public with it and just getting it out there and just taking the lumps and you know being done with it. Uh, so... But Stuart Alexander is very interesting because he just did all this work and he almost disappeared from history if it hadn't been for a high school student. A high school student. Yes. Out there in the youth looking around. I mean, you talk about roads through history. I mean, that's not to play on the guy's name. but (laughs) Or yours. Or mine. (laughs) When you cruise through history, if you will, you find all these little stories. And one is that so there was a high school student, 1987. His name was Nicholas Spark, not the author. I was about to say, like no. <laughs> Nicholas Sparks did. Like, did he? He does more than just be an author. Like, okay. right. So it was Spark singular. He had gone to a yard sale and he bought a whole collection of these old American heritage magazines. They were all bound together. Mm-hmm. And so he was reading uh, an excerpt from this Infield book about the Bari incident and he thought well that'd be a great a topic for my essay for national history day at my high school because that's how you get your essay topics is going to a yard sale and picking up (laughs) random books yeah any of our younger listeners won't really (laughs) 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 they didn't he didn't go to the internet as it were and so not even the public library just yard sale that's where to get started And, and his this guy's dad was a pathologist so his his dad was in the medical field but what's really interesting about this kid is that he, well, he's not a kid now, but at the time was, he didn't like Infield's book. He thought it left too much to, so he contacted like the Veterans Administration trying to get records of this Alexander. Okay. And so he did, well, there was a, St. Louis, Missouri is where some of the records are, a lot of the records are stored, but there was yeah. a fire there. But they, were able, they did find an old personnel file for uh, for Stuart Alexander, it was kind of it was sort of slightly damaged. It wasn't totally damaged, so that was usable. And so he's, I guess, this kid sent this Alexander a letter, and Stuart Alexander called him on the phone, like legitimately called a high schooler, right? About and records. So they, you know, you, you almost wouldn't believe this, but it's true. Um, so what he did is he started to record the conversations between him. He went to Radio Shack which no one's going to know what that is either. But he, went to Radio, he went to Radio Shack and he bought a, a phone recorder and so he recorded these conversations. And, and Alexander, and then he did, he did win the essay contest. Of course. And so Alexander thought, you know, that's nice. So Alexander called him and, 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 uh, and uh, congratulated him, but he didn't really want the spotlight. But that wasn't enough for this, this kid. So what he did is he contacted... Uh, at the time, uh, one of the senators from Arizona was named Dennis DeConcini. Okay. So he contacted him and told him about all this. And then he thought it was wrong that no one had recognized Alexander for what really he contributed to medicine. 
And Alexander himself was fairly modest and didn't really think about it all that that much. He was a family physician and a cardiologist, and so and so yeah. So after about a couple of years, and maybe about a year later, 1988, they did honor Stuart Alexander in Congress. Uh, and uh, I just think if it hadn't been <laughs> if it hadn't been for that kid being so persistent, we, you know he might be lost history. And in fact, a Alexander died in. Uh, 1991, so not too long after he was honored, and that's how this story came about. And, and but really, uh, uh, Janet Conant's book is the first book, I mean, book link thing I've ever seen. Except I never read Glenn Infield's book; I didn't even know it existed until I was researching for this topic. So, uh, yeah, so there's there's little highways and byways. I mean, I don't want to get. Too schmaltzy with that. But, you know. <laughs> oh my gosh, Scott! Today, today you're on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. So that's how that all came about, and um, it's really interesting because my mother has leukemia, and so she's being treated now. Mm -hmm. And they they were doing something on her that was uh, not experimental, but it wasn't even a chemotherapy. It was a pill. Mm -hmm. Now she had to stop taking it because of certain side effects. But still, I'm thinking a pill. Now, there's different forms of leukemia. Hers isn't as virulent as some of the other ones, which are harder to, harder to, to treat. But I just I think about that, how it wrapped up with this whole story. Even I sort of stumbled on this by accident. Yeah. This whole, th I never knew it. And I'm thinking, how could that not have gotten into anything? And even, even in 1987, when the senator's office had started investigating this because they needed to clear all this stuff before they could give this award to Dr. Alexander. The British were still saying, no, well, we don't know if it was that. And until finally they admitted. And, she, and it, there's a line in her book that's kind of funny. It's kind of clever, too, because she says that, um, you know, it wasn't Winston Churchill's finest hour. <laughs> and I know it's kind of dopey, but it, it's kind of funny, too. But um, they finally said that, well, you know, given everything that was going on, and, and I guess there's a little truth to that, because in December of 42, you had the Germans were bogged down in Russia. Mm -hmm. The Pacific War was rolling with yeah. battles in Guadalcanal. And so this whole world war was, was really going, going then. And so, but, you know, I don't know. I mean, Churchill probably had his reasons, <laughs> but... I don't know if it was to not, but the funny thing is, if it was not to have the Germans find out that we had this, they knew it anyway. They found it out. So that, that's, not, that's not, to me, surprising, given that I'm sure there were plenty of, even though Italy immediately surrendered. Yeah. <laughs> there were, I'm sure that there were still plenty of, um, of partisans that were probably to you know sympathetic to the fascists or, well, or even there were plenty of germans that were in italy too at the time well it's also there's got to be there's got to be a bit of morale factor there because you know you're talking about who has the moral high ground um yes. a lot of the time and you're like and chemical weapons were i don't think they were banned at this point no but they were they were still looked down upon yes um, which is why they were never used again after world war one but you made an interesting point they weren't their use was banned, but their production wasn't, if you can sort of follow this. It was in 1925, the Geneva, there was a Geneva Protocol. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know, it banned the use, but not the possession 
of chemical or biological weapons in war, which tells me that... Just don't tell us about it. Well, how are you... <laughs> if you're, you're producing them for a reason. I mean, yes, for defense reasons. Yeah. But you're still producing them for a reason. But just don't tell anybody about it. Right. Just don't, don't use it. Unless you're using it as part of an experiment or trying to find out if it can help with cancer. <laughs> right. I mean, if, if the Luftwaffe never bombed Bari Harbor, we never would have known there... I'm sure that John Harvey would have just sailed away without everybody, everybody, any no, nobody ever knew, knowing that. It would just be a, one of those classified military secrets. Yes. Just something. And who knows? I mean, there could have been other incidents too, but we just don't know. Yeah. And we may not know for another hundred years or fifty years. Until we may, uh, we may be thinking of like um, classified of veterans. Just you know, we just hear stories from veterans on. They were denied something for something, and they don't know why. And so, someone would eventually, I'd imagine, put put the dots together. They did. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them put a lot of the medical personnel put the dots together right away. But they kept saying, "Oh no, no, it's not that." Mm -hmm. So, and then how they were treating them was just making it worse. So let's say I'm covered in this this whatever. This drenched suit and mustard gas that just got and absorbed. And yeah. a lot of them sat in their clothes for like 24 hours. Yep. They were, had blankets thrown over them. So that just increased the penetration oh, of no. into the... And it was all by the skin. It was all through the skin. That's how this all came about. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting when you think about it. In some ways, it's interesting. In other ways, it's sort of horrifying. I'm just thinking, and it, penetrate, it penetrating the skin, and then eventually you had it directly injected into your bloodstream. Like now we go, we go full circle back to that point, but a right. different version. I mean, it wasn't exactly no, you know the it, sulfur. It, it, it was, and I don't know the chemical breakdown of these things, but yeah, I tried it, looking it, it up. It was it, something in it was how they 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 sort of. They, they got to this per point where they said, this is the thing that will. Yeah. And I do believe in 1948, uh, Alexander Haddow, who was a, a chemist in the UK, and he, he did publish a study showing which parts of nitrogen mustard were necessary mm -hmm. for its cancer-killing properties. So, yeah. so the work continued here and in the UK, even though in the UK it was kind of classified for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, that work continued, you know, so... Yeah, for any for any aspiring chemists out there, um, I think I think your homework assignment is to look up uh, the chemical composition of mustard gas <laughs> as a chemotherapy treatment, show. and just s try saying it, and just remember all those little tips of saying what you know each that combo. And of you know, some is. of our listeners may even be aware. I mean, chlorambucil was a drug that is still in use. It mm -hmm. was approved in 1957. And it's used for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Is that a mustard gas one? Mm -hmm. okay. And not high. And there's one called mustardin. <laughs> they're not really trying to hide, are and they? I I look both of these up in Google. They're still they're still used. And mustardin is um, a nitrogen mustard still employed as a, a chemotherapeutic for several cancers, including lymphosarcoma and some types of leukemia. Wow. So it's still. Just think though, at least out of something horrifying something good had come, as opposed to um, some of the other things that have popped up in history yeah. and, and in World War II. And when you mentioned Royal High Ground, yeah, there's, there's, still, there's still some of that, too, you know, about, mm -hmm. about firebombing and, and uh, nuclear bombing, those kind of things, you know. So, yeah. But at least out of this, something, something was able to grow that actually 
help people. There were some stops and starts, and Cornelius Rhodes himself isn't very, a very sympathetic character either. He had he has oh, his own. He's kind of controversial, and as for some of the things he was doing when he was uh, working in Puerto Rico in the 1930s, and so those things came out when he became head of the hospital, and then I think he passed away in the late 50s. But yeah, so yeah, I mean, at least out of something terrible, this was. Uh, this happened. Yeah. So. At least something, yes, yeah, something came out of it throughout the experimentation, the moral, morality, the all <laughs> right. of that stuff. Something came out of it that we were like, okay. We but, most, but most of the people weren't forced. I mean, they, yeah. they did volunteer. Uh, Babe Ruth is like the most famous of them, yeah. but still. All right. Thank you, Scott. So, Scott, do you have an idea of what we're talking about next year? What, what next time? What are we cruising through? Well, I'm going to talk about uh, I don't think anybody would believe that they tried to use a submarine during the American Revolution. The American Revolution. The American Revolution, yes, yeah, 1776. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to figure out how, how that happened next time because that's, uh, I don't think the technology was there, so. No, no, but it is an interesting story. Okay. Well, thank you, and thank you for joining us, listeners. We will cruise through some more history next time. Thank you. Thank you, Xander.